0: A couple weeks back, fans of this podcast with especially good ears may have recognized a familiar voice if they were listening to National Public Radio's morning or afternoon programming.
1: Good morning. morning. Are these second graders? Is this second grade? no. Third grade. What what grade? grade.
0: No. That was the superintendent of Jackson, Mississippi Public Schools, Dr. Eric Green, proud to greet the students he always calls scholars as well as the JPS staff he calls his team. Here's Eric thanking a custodian for his hard work getting the
1: building ready. Well, thank you so much. I know this is a big job. a lot
0: in a day work.
1: Well, I know. Listen, yeah. I, I know you got it, but I want you to know that, that we
0: see you. As you probably know, this week the schools have had to close because of the water crisis in Jackson, which is the result of decades of systemic neglect. Residents have been urged to boil their water for over a month now, just as they were for 225 days in 2021. I'm recording this on September 2nd, 2022. Exactly two years ago, I was excited to release the following episode with Dr. Green, which is more like three episodes in one. A case study in contending with a public health crisis, a strong example of bearing witness to racist violence, and a masterclass on organizational leadership from a seasoned professional who honors his colleagues. All three major facets of our conversation are still poignant today, but I'm redropping this classic episode mostly because I hope it will refresh the texture of the Jackson community for you, as it did for me when I re-listened yesterday. If you were able to donate some money to help Jackson residents, please check out the link on the show page or in the episode notes of your podcast app. Thanks, and now my 2020 conversation with Dr. Eric L. Green who leads with mind and heart. On today's show, Dr. Eric Green, an inspiring school leader.
1: My job is to ensure that we create conditions for great, magical, excellent, things to happen and to be done.
0: As the superintendent of schools in Jackson, Mississippi, he has had to contend with relentless complications of the COVID-19
1: crisis. We have to be extra cautious about um, the safety of the young people, yes, but also the possibility of them carrying the virus back home to elderly uh, family members and loved ones and community members.
0: We talked some about the solutions that Jackson is discovering.
1: We're working with the city to create a meshing, a wireless meshing around the city and in some of the densely populated areas where we're concerned about um, the uh, folks having less connectivity, less opportunities and access for education, for uh, employment searches and that sort of thing, for telehealth, lots of opportunities that that opens up for those families.
0: We also explore some of the moral imperatives of educating young people in this moment of greater awareness of social injustice.
1: This is the work. The work is not simply teaching young Eric to read, teaching young Kamisha to write, or to think critically about some benign topic, but thinking critically about the world, the world around us in the broader context, um, and the ways in which we can all act to make it um, to make it better, and some of the
0: practices that are helpful for any kind of leader or team player.
1: I'm modeling those times when it doesn't feel great. I'm modeling those times when I'm so so determined that what I'm thinking is the right way, but my team is not on the same page with me. I've got to investigate that. I've got to explore that. Like. It, how is it that I'm just completely right and everybody else is wrong? How is that possible, (laughs) right? All that and much more on this
0: episode of Point of Learning. Do stick around. Eric L. Green's career in education spans more than 25 years and about half of the continental United States He started in the classroom, teaching middle school and elementary students. Later, he became a principal, principal supervisor, chief of staff, and consultant to senior district leaders in Washington, D.C., Detroit, Syracuse, Baltimore, and Newark, New Jersey. Dr. Green served as chief of schools in Tulsa, Oklahoma before arriving in Mississippi where, as superintendent of Jackson Public Schools, he's responsible for the second largest district in the state. Eric earned his doctorate in educational and organizational leadership from the University of Pennsylvania, which is where I met him back in 2011. He holds two master's degrees in education, one from Trinity University and another from Howard University. Howard was also where he earned his bachelor's degree in political science. I could go on, but A, Eric urged me to hit it and quit it, and B, I want to reserve as much space as possible for this important and timely conversation. It gives an inside look at some of the challenges facing school leaders in this especially complex moment, charged with challenges related to public health and social justice, and also provides great ideas that anyone leading anything can apply, whether it's a team, business, or household. So just one last note before we get started, you will notice that Eric always refers to the 24,000 plus kids in the 54 schools and programs of his district, not as students, but as scholars. It's a small clue as to how seriously he takes the promise and potential of each and every one of them. Eric, thanks so much for taking time to do the show today. When I met you nine years ago, you were supervising administrators and schools for a large sector of the Washington DC public school system. After that, you served for a number of years as chief of schools in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In 2018, you accepted the call to become superintendent of schools in Jackson, Mississippi, where you are now. Now, Historically, Mississippi has invested less than most other states in public education which is one challenge. The Jackson District, with 22,500 young scholars in 52 schools, narrowly avoided a state takeover in 2017. So the district is being especially closely monitored all the time. And of course your city is a state capital, so state education folks are not far away. Anyhow, the scrutiny, or as public school folk like to call it accountability, is another challenge. As somebody familiar with you and your talents, I can't think of anyone better to serve in the role of JPS superintendent, but I've never asked you directly. What drew you to Jackson and this work?
1: Well, uh, first off, just thank you for having me on. Uh, Pete, really excited to have this conversation. Um, there were several things. I I was obviously kind of building in my career, building towards the superintendency and, and looking forward to um, to leading a school district and and a district uh, made up largely of children who look like me and with um, uh, many of them with uh, low-income households and neighborhoods, communities, um, a district where there's been lots of challenges and lots of, um, I just say, uh, lots of room for continued growth and development. As I was looking around at, at opportunities to lead a district, um, there's a there's something about the the size of the district, the makeup and the uh, composition of the student body, the team, some of the um, uh, characteristics of the of the city, of the kind of surrounding community. And there are lots of things about Jackson that just spoke to me. One, it's large enough to matter, but small enough to get your arms around. Um, as I said, the the student body and, and the families that we serve, uh, lots of, uh, mainly folks of color, and uh, there's a good number of folks living in uh, low-income families. And so that's that's the work that I've done so much in my career and where I just feel comfortable um, that this really tough work, that I'm, I'm making a difference and, and uh, doing something that's meaningful. Um, as well, though, I met the, the leadership here, the the school board, members, the the mayor uh, here in Jackson. Um, I had known the, the state superintendent for, for some time from our work in DC around the same time. So there were lots of folks in and around Jackson Public Schools where I felt like um, we were of like mind. I, I could see uh, their vision and, and what they were looking for in terms of excellence and leadership and service. Uh, a commitment to lock arms and not to immediately be adversarial and to fight and, and challenge the work of the, the superintendent here. Just felt like, uh, it. well, it was clear to me uh, as I was looking at Jackson and considering this as my new home and where I'd, I'd do work for probably the rest of my career, that this is a place where I could really, really um, call home and where I could really dig in, um, stick and stay um uh set up roots and, and uh just become a part of what works here in Jackson. They also just had a number of, of partners. The Kellogg Foundation, as I said the the uh the city and the state. Uh even though the state had moved to take over the the district, they didn't want to. They didn't want to take it over. They they were determined that something needed to happen, that change needed to happen and, and they weren't getting that kind of um Urgent response from uh, from the school district early on, and so that's why they made the bold move that they did. Um, but but it was really clear that there would be partners in the work here, and so this it just made sense to me. Um, yeah, and I'm and I'm excited, and and frankly, in the two years almost two years that I've been here, I I don't regret it not for a bit, and it's been tough. <laughs> i will tell you it's been tough we're gonna get into
0: some parts of that but you know i understand that under under your tenure the the district moved a full letter grade you know in terms of quality and you give some credit to some of the things that were already in in process but of course um that's that's part of the graciousness i know to be characteristic of you i'm sure you had some some role in that as well but as if you didn't have enough on your plate already speaking of challenges COVID COVID 19 dealt your district like every other district and school of any kind throughout the country and across the globe, the coronavirus pandemic dealt JPS a staggering blow this spring. Now you re- reopened last week, I believe completely online. Is that right?
1: Right. Well, we, uh, we were scheduled to reopen schools uh, this week.
0: This week, okay.
1: And due to the governor's um, latest executive order that uh, that delayed the start of school in eight districts around or eight counties around the state uh, because of some of the numbers, the rising uh, cases and infection rates. Um, so we we delayed until the 17th. But yeah, it's um, it's 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 been tough in general. And then, of course, since since March of this year, it's just been um, ridiculously uh, uh, difficult just to lead and, and to keep our arms around what is the truth with regard to the health crisis and and what are the numbers saying? Because the same numbers, you have a few people talking about them and they're drawing vastly different conclusions and, and next steps and all of that. And that's been, I would say, part of the challenge I would bet all of us is district leaders um, and and likely others in in other fields. But across the country, um, just struggling with the, you know, you hear this data, you hear these recommendations, you see uh, these kind of um, uh, urgings from certain leaders and then folks develop plans that don't align, right? There's some folks who who were going back to school here in this fall, uh, going back full-blown in in um, in the traditional model, and others with options, and we actually started offering options—the traditional, hybrid, and virtual—and and, and over the course of a week, our numbers just spiked so rapidly and so dramatically that it was just clear we we couldn't continue with that original plan, and so we we dialed that back and and decided to to offer the. Um, uh, virtual model only
0: was that number spiking uh, among students or among the community at large or what
1: the s- state at large the the, the, the our community our 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 count our county and the city of Jackson. Um, in particular, and then uh, we were starting. To, we've been starting to see more of the pediatric COVID cases, oh. so that that as well. Plus, just some of the context of our our um, our district. We know that many of our scholars live with grandparents or an elderly aunt or some. There's someone in the home that's uh, of age, and there's lots of underlying health. Challenges, diabetes and asthma and, and high blood pressure and, and just on and on. So lots of that throughout the community. And so that overlaying, overlaying the COVID uh, pandemic, it, it was just clear that we, we have to be extra cautious about um, the safety of the young people, yes, but also the possibility of them carrying the virus back home. To elderly uh, family members and loved ones, and community members.
0: You mentioned that the governor issued an executive order delaying the opening of school, but it, was it up up to you uh, in terms of the Was it up to each district to decide uh, what reopening would look like, whether it was going to be hybrid, or was that also a, you know a public health decision? Yeah.
1: yeah. No, no. We were so there was guidance from the CDC. Centers for Disease Control. There was guidance from our state uh, health department. There's guidance from the state agency, uh, education agency. Um, We never had an an overall or permanent uh, requirement that folks wear masks in the state, though there's a requirement in the city. Um, and the governor again looked at some of the infection rates and some of the, the data that um, around the state, and identified eight specific counties where um, where w- w- there was greater concern. And so we had a mandate to delay the start, but there was still the all the variety. There's there's tons of variety even within the Jackson metro area as to the models of, of um delivery of, ed- of education of instruction that folks are using so there there's a district adjacent to us that is 100 um, percent traditional uh, with some exceptions of folks who are choosing virtual and then there are others that are offering models and and maybe uh, virtual for the first few weeks or through the end of the month or that sort of thing Um, we're one of I don't know at this point there there have been more that are going virtual at least in the short run but more uh, over time who are making that choice but um, I know of maybe one or two other districts in the in the state that are uh, virtual for the year we selected or, or elected to go virtual for the first semester again because we can just based on the numbers and based on the data, just makes made sense to call it for the semester. Allow families to plan around that virtual model, allowing us to prepare ourselves for this longer run um, virtual. And and frankly, you know, as we continue to hear the news reports and health experts, in that um, I don't know that. Come December, January, folks will feel very differently, and we'll have a different level of spread in the state or in this this county that would suggest that oh, okay, now we can do something different and open up some of these other options. Obviously, as you know, um, the virtual option though, it's it's really problematic for families who, you know, if there's a a parent who's a working parent and. They, they need to now find an alternative for their child to be during the day, custodial sure. care and that sort of thing. So,
0: we, And that's not to mention, you know, the, the technical difficulties. I think, you know, the, I think that you, uh, you and JPS were able to estimate that about three in 10 families in your district have issues connecting to the Internet, you know, including sometimes lacking devices sometimes. How, how are you addressing that challenge for online learning?
1: And that's, you know, that's the estimate, that 3 in 10 is the estimate for families. It's, um, right. it's even okay. greater as you think about individual scholars. So we Dying. were not one-to-one. We had about sure. half the number of devices in our inventory for our 22,500 five, 22, scholars.
0: One-to-one is school speak, meaning that every student has access to a device like a laptop or Chromebook for their own use.
1: So we had about half that uh, in our inventory of of Chromebooks and and devices for them, um, which is a good start. Um, And so between the inventory of devices that we have and what we're learning from families in terms of who has at least one device, even if there's two, three, or more scholars living in the home. And trying to figure out how to share,
0: right? Exactly,
1: which is crazy. But at least there's one there and some level of connectivity. Um, so between that and, and ours we we're confident that we're able to get all of the homes connected and then families have to do this crazy dance of who's gonna get on because you know school is largely happening at the same time no matter your kindergarten or ninth grade or senior right. Okay. Um, and so they have to do this crazy dance of trying to share between them. But once we've blanketed um, the, the the district uh, and each of the families, we, we're confident that each family has at least a device and some level of connectivity, then we start kind of going back to, okay, now where are there are multiple uh, siblings within the home and where can we start to build up more of that. That's for now. We've ordered devices to completely go one-to-one and, and those should you know we're in line with everyone else around the country in getting devices and shipments in. And so um, as those come in um, next month and, and and on we'll be able to deploy those devices and so later in the fall we should have a device for we will have a device for every scholar which is really really exciting. Um, it's fantastic. just getting there, right It's getting to that point. And, and and all of the the cultural and logistical things around uh, going one to one, you know. Um, of course, you don't flip a switch and and just decide. Oh, okay, well, we can go and buy the devices, and we've got the devices in, and now we're one to one. There's all the planning, all the uh, preparation, all the professional development for our teachers, and the readiness for scholars, the readiness for families just all of that stuff. Um, we've, one last thing I'll say on this is we, um, we we have a, a small number of hotspots within the district. We've purchased okay. more of those to help families uh, that are just completely uh, disconnected. And so we'll have some of those to deploy as well, but we're also working with the city to, um, to create a wire, well, the city has a, a longer term multi-year uh, term plan for um, expanding broadband connectivity which is awesome but that's years out and so in the short shorter run um, well in the immediate uh, future we've got these um, these hot spots and in the shorter term kind of into the fall we're working with the city to create a meshing a wireless meshing around the city and in some of the densely populated areas where we're concerned about um, the uh, folks having less connectivity less opportunities and access and So creating that and, and creating some uh, wireless uh, uh, opportunities that we can then just provide to our scholars and families, which obviously for education, for uh, employment searches and that sort of thing, for telehealth, lots of opportunities that that opens up for those families.
0: You mentioned health. Um, you know, one of the other uh, concerns. I think about you know close to 95 percent of your students your scholars are available are are eligible for free and reduced lunch and so one of the real services that you provide is a nutritional service as a school Uh, like how are you are you are you able to make provisions along those lines or how do you how do you address that
1: yes um, I will say, while we've got a pretty strong sense of wh- where those needs are and, and who those families are and those scholars are, mm-hmm. it, it, it still feels somewhat of a moving target, right? One because families uh, where that are housing insecure and and you know perhaps are underemployed or unemployed. There's Oftentimes, some mobility there, and 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 so moving from school to school or home to home, and so so we ex, we experience that throughout the year, and that's in and of itself a challenge. But also thinking about how you set up hubs or 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 uh, distribution uh, sites for meals for packets instructional packets or other resources for scholars those can sometimes be a little tricky but but that's exactly it we um we had some experiences well we every summer we set up meal distribution sites around the city and so it's not totally foreign to us is that right back in the spring we um we we did the same thing as we closed down for virtual or at-home learning uh, to close out the year, uh, we we created a system to get meals out, but we were we were we just ran the the sites themselves, and families had to come to them. And you'd find that individuals in a community would come and get meals for several families or several of our scholars within that community on their block or in the um, housing projects or what have you. Um, this, going into the fall, we are still running, um, I think we've increased the number of those those hubs, those sites by a couple, and we're using our busing, uh, our transportation team to help us to get the, the meals out further. Um, we've been working with uh, further into the communities to uh, Boys and Girls Clubs, some of the other nonprofits, to churches. We've been working with those groups to... Um, you know, where possible to create little pods or opportunities for families to, uh, for, for the scholars to be there while parents are, are working, and they can get connected and and work remotely, uh, plugging into the, the classrooms uh, from those sites. Uh, but they're also just sites where, um, you know, folks can more readily and easily get there and pick up a meal and, and then go back home if they are learning from home, so lots of kind of layered strategies to try to provide for the needs.
0: Right. Well, there you go with strategy, but that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, you you also have. I mean, these are all these additional logistical considerations that you know. Um, you know, summer provision of meals notwithstanding. I mean, you don't expect to do this during the school year. So I wanted to know how you keep thinking strategically. Um, how you how you how you go big picture. In the face of this, you know, very difficult adaptive challenge that you are all figuring out. I mean, I know you rolled out a strategic plan last summer, for example. How how do you keep thinking strategically, educationally, um, you know, amidst these ripples?
1: It's it's a challenge. I will tell you, it's a challenge even outside of COVID, right? Because the the day to day. Sure. Issues of, you know, of, of life, the challenges of living in an urban, urban area where sometimes, you know, our buildings are burglarized. And so, OK, there goes there goes the coil from the air conditioning. And so we've got to replace that or there go, you know, some number of our laptops or, or other devices or whatever it might be. Those kinds of issues, the, they exist already. Um, we we have a uh, we have the staffing to serve the scholars that we have, but that means that there are that many more people that you've got to worry about as well. And and our staff members and team members they have lives, and so they get ill or they have family issues. And and so keeping the staffing, stable staffing in place is yet another issue. So those things are already at issue. And then you layer on again, this pandemic that just makes it that much more difficult. So how do we maintain the focus? Uh, One is by uh, as frequently as possible, uh, keeping the strategic plan in front of all of us. Referencing, um, uh, putting it directly in front of, of us as a leadership team, in front of our staff members, our, our leaders, school leaders, in front of our families, um, parents and, and community members, all of those folks, because it, it, it has to live and we have to continue to, to ensure that it lives. And so why are we making this decision? Well, if you refer back to our core values in our strategic plan, well, as we stated in our strategic plan, one of our commitments is X. Well, as we noted in the strategic plan, we're not only educating young people to, you know, so that they can read or count or whatever, write or whatever it might be, but they do those things for a purpose. There's a larger goal in life that we're preparing them for. And so, um, again, using the strategic plan around that. It's also ensuring that the plan is not just Eric Green's. I was very clear early on. This is, we're not building this plan for Eric. Yep. One, I don't I don't need it just for me. We need it as a community. Right. So that when we get in the thick of things okay. and we've got all these difficult decisions to make and right. the the answer is not so, so clear, we've got something to ground us, and something to redirect us. And when we get that you know, funder or that community leader or that parent uh, with a strong, influential voice or whatever it might be, who's got an idea of something that they want us to do, and it makes sense on the surface of it, we can put that up against our strategic plan to say, hey, these are the things that we committed to doing, first and foremost. Does that new idea, does that fit in this plan? Yes or no? And if it does, is now the right time to do that? Because we've also given some thought to um, not only the right thing in general, but the pieces of the thing that makes sense today, next month, next year, three years out, etc. right? So uh, it, it kind of insulates us from all of the great ideas that bubble up throughout the year seem, seemingly every day. Um, and, and give us cover for doing the doing a few things really, really well um, and seeing the successes from that and having those successes fuel future work. Um, one thing, one last thing I'll say about this, we um, we get beaten up, have been beaten up quite a bit. Right. Long before the state came and said, hey, you know, you've not been performing. We 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 really want to move to take over the, the district long before that. We've gotten, you know, um, because of performance, because of incidents, because of, you know, leadership moves or or whatever it might be, just ongoing and and lingering perceptions of the district, leadership, of the staffing in general, of our children, of our families, of the city, all of that, right? And so um, what I've been really, really determined to do is create some wins for us. Uh, and really publicize the heck out of those. Yeah, celebrate, yeah. Celebrate. You gotta
0: have that 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 cheerleading role. Absolutely. Of public leadership, sure, yeah.
1: And arresting that narrative of JPS of Jackson of our our community of our people, um, such that no one else owns storytelling rights of who we are, what we're about, what we've accomplished, and what we haven't. We have to be honest about those times when we don't quite get it right and recommit to getting it right in the future, but also being really dogmatic about the people who, others who don't get it right, when they tell our story and pushing back hard on that so that in the very least it's a balanced retelling of who we are and what we're about. Um, And that's something that I think all educators, frankly, whether you're a classroom teacher or a principal, district superintendent, it doesn't matter, that all educators have to be more intentional about because, you know, everybody went to school, everybody in this country, at least, we, we all went to school. And so we all have some experiences with it, and therefore believe that unlike what we do with our doctors and with our lawyers, we all believe that we can can run a school and we should, you know, our voice and our opinion should rule the day. Um, you know, <laughs> Oh, well.
0: <laughs> we talked a little about COVID-19, uh, but let's shift to another pandemic, uh, in the U.S. at least. Uh, systemic racism. Days after the murder of George Floyd, which of course succeeded the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and far too many others. You recorded a powerful video letter to the Jackson Public Schools community, uh, which I'll link to the show page uh, with your permission, Sure. for this episode. And you spoke candidly about the intersection of your personal uh, class privilege of being able to live in a more affluent neighborhood. The intersection of that with your racial identity as a black man, using Claude Steele's term whistling Vivaldi, to describe what you found yourself doing as you went out for a run, actively trying to seem less threatening to those you passed along the way. Now you emphasize that you did not share this anecdote as a play for sympathy, but rather to acknowledge that despite the academic and professional achievements that enabled you to earn, in your words, a bit of that American dream, your skin color is often a liability you quickly connected this personal example to the broader district aims of relevant education and the moral imperative to support young scholars to become righteous leaders in their community and in the larger world. Along with, I know, many others, I was addressed and deeply moved by this kind of public testimony that we don't normally hear from our school leaders, certainly. I can't think it was an easy decision to record this video letter. Uh, may I ask how, how you decided to do it and how it fits for you into what you consider the public leadership dimension of your role?
1: Yeah. Uh, a few things. One, you know, we were in the midst of the COVID pandemic, um, and so we're we're at a distance. And so all of of the happenings of life, illnesses, deaths, um, birthdays, anniversaries, just all of the happenings of life are being experienced at a a distance. This too, this this resurgence of um, attention around um, racial discrimination, um, injustice, all of that was being experienced largely at a distance and through television and computer screens and on social media platforms and all of that. And so, um, you know, uh, like others, I was grappling with my own kind of um, sense-making of it and, and, you know, what does this mean and what is my responsibility as as an individual, as, as a member of my own community and, and network, but also as a, a leader in the district, um, just felt like uh, remaining silent was, was not an option. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I, I rarely uh, kind of position myself as, a, as the activist, quote unquote, as the stereotypical, I should say activist um and um and and use my voice and my platform uh in those ways uh but i felt it was it would have been reckless um and a huge missed opportunity for me to remain silent and not share one just my concerns about what had happened with those individuals and others many others in the past, um, the ongoing um, challenges around racial injustice, find myself as someone who grew up in the North, I'm living in the South, and specifically in Jackson with its, and in the state of Mississippi with all of its history around race and and social justice and all of that. It's just, again, I, I couldn't remain silent. Um, I wasn't sure exactly what I needed to say though. Um, and um, and yeah, I think like most many people just grappling with what, what, what is it that I want to say and what is it that I wanna, want to want to promise and commit to? Um, and um, pretty quickly what, what, what surfaced for, for me was, you know, I lead the the Jackson Public School District. Um, I work with some amazing educators, um, amazing board members, Peers um, in the community and families and, and folks who, you know, we're all grappling with what now? How do we keep from coming back around to these same, you know, you know, horrible acknowledgments of killings and injustice in in all its form, all their forms. Um, And so wanted to just spark for us as educators, let's ensure that in the very least, what we do in classrooms and in in learning spaces, that we're creating opportunities and taking responsibility and and the opportunities for developing in our young people um, the skills, the capacity, the desire to make the world a world in which we all want to live. And seeing that as not just a, a nice to have, a nice to do, but a moral imperative. This is the work. The work is not simply teaching young Eric to read, teaching young, uh, you know, Kamisha to to um, to write or to think critically about some benign topic, but thinking critically about the world, the world around us, and the broader context. Um, and the ways in which we can all act to make it, um, to make it better. Uh, and I, I want to be real. I, um, I typically feel safe when I'm out running, you know, relatively safe uh, when I'm out running in my neighborhood. But the reality is, even with that, and even with you know, the, the trappings of the life that, that I've amassed over time, it occurs to me that the you know white woman running near me could feel some level of um fear or or danger from me simply by my my skin color and so i'm i'm really uh, uh conscious of that and and Obviously, in the moment, I want to try to dispel any of those types of fears, but I'm also conscious of the fact that that that's on my mind, that that's taking up part of my headspace in in the moment. And it's just, it's unfortunate.
0: Well, real, real was how it came across. And I think that was, you know, part of the power. It was not at all. um, uh, It was not at all dogmatic. It was not at all prescriptive. Um, but I think that was the that was the thing. It, was, it felt like it was really g- clearly that you were speaking from the heart. You, s- you said in the letter, you, in the video letter, that you don't consider yourself a quote-unquote activist, but that nobody in this current moment has the luxury of sitting on the sidelines when it comes to fighting oppression and systemic racism. And you just said that you were um, you know, beginning to think. You know, Ian, w- with some of the w- with some of the uh, your colleagues at JPS, um, and I just wanted to ask because some, of, as you know, some of the work I'm most passionate about when I consult with schools is helping educators, students, and parents have more productive conversations about hard topics, um, including social identities. You know, for example, and systemic racism. So I'm curious about if there are, you know, if the plans taking shape or w- where you are in terms of thinking about this, perhaps in a more explicit way, given the climate of the country, given the charged character of this election, um, you know, to are there plans to listen to students and educators concerns about the current politics. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you how are you thinking about moving forward to a more just society and schools role in that, because, you know, like for me, one of the things that we, you know, tend to, because there are all of these other things, you you know, those, those issues about teaching somebody to read, teaching somebody to write and compute. Those are, you know, important things. But one of the things that we can tend to abdicate, especially uh, for public schools getting slammed uh, with, uh, you know, these standards of accountability um, at the expense of thinking about how we are modeling and how we are asking students to participate as Citizens giving opportunities to do that because it's not easy to do. Um, so I just kind of I just wanted to check in with where you all are with
1: that. Uh, if there are a few things that are are bubbling up. One is um, some pretty. Um, specific work around uh, just kind of rethinking the curriculum, what it includes, what it doesn't include, how it's, how it lives in classrooms. And obviously we're not, you know, we're not in a place and certainly not right now uh, to, to, to totally revamp the curriculum, but, but um, some pretty targeted uh, efforts around like, what are, what are some of the, the, um, required readings and, and um, uh, lessons around history and, and, and that sort of thing that we can fairly easily push on and layer into uh, the, the current curriculum, just to beef that up and, and ensure that all of our scholars see themselves and see themselves more readily in what they're learning um, and, and the relevance in, in what they're learning and how they're learning.
0: And, and relevance is one of those core values that's in the, you know, that, you know, that, dri- that drives your mission, which I think is superb, yeah. You
1: know. It's one of the six and, and, um, and we mean it, we mean it. We're yeah. constantly referencing, you know, it was early on, uh, uh, we do shout outs and, and we kind of, um, we do shout outs for, for things that people have done um, in the past week or so in team meetings and that. And um, we reference even in um, agenda items with our board uh, the core values or the pieces of the strategic plan that this new item, this new contract, or this new initiative that they align to. Early on, excellence, growth mindset, uh, maybe even relationships were the easy go tos. Now, more and more, folks are referencing our work around and the connection to uh, and the furtherance of relevance as we do those those shout outs and as we acknowledge um, kind of the the uh, connectedness of these new initiatives so
0: yeah. If I could interrupt to give you a shout out in real time, I think this is one of the things that is so Im- important and such a great model of, you know, we, we, plenty of schools have these mission statements or let alone you know, strategic plans, you know, which which many people in the district don't even know about, right? Uh, they, they let alone, you know, they're far removed from the life of the school and it's very easy for that sort of thing to... Uh, to happen, and nobody's going to want you to to recite the strategic plan and, and and look at the flag every day, you know, as we do with the pledge of allegiance. Like, it can't happen that way that you that you remember it because you repeat it all the time, but is a way to make it real and to make it live, to make it a living. You know, this uh, that the applicability of what you've decided that you want to do to keep bringing that out. I think it's 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 so important because otherwise it is just something on the front page of the student handbook, you know, or. Or the district handbook, or what have you. It's not, yeah.
1: And it doesn't so, live. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. I mean, we 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 thought quite a bit as we were developing the plan about how we would keep it alive and who would keep it alive. It can't just be right. Eric. Um, so that, but, so the point I was making with that is, you know, relevance has been a thing that, that is bubbling up more and more where folks are seeing opportunities to create relevance, um, and to acknowledge the, the relevance or the, or where things are irrelevant. And therefore we need to look again at, so is this the thing that we should be doing? Um, so, um, uh, so th- that work that I that I named as well, one of the pieces of the strategic plan is our um, uh, the the profile of a JPS graduate, and in that we specifically call out um, this need to and this desire to develop young people who who have some sense of government and democracy, um, and have some sense of a, a strong sense of and and and. Um, Kind of ownership of the um, political issues, and that's big P, small P, political issues sure. within the community, state, country, around the world, and that they act on it, and so that they are registered voters, and that they have, you know, developed a stand, and and likely that stance will will change and evolve over time as they grow. But but that's specifically called out in our. Uh, profile of a JPS graduate and so um we've we've developed a partnership with uh, actually a couple of organizations that are helping us to one just ensure that our young people are registered but also uh, providing them with platforms and some deeper understanding of the um, of the um, governmental systems and 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 some of the uh, various workings of the democratic society and so you know there are ways that we're living into this, and we see that there's so so much more that we could and want to do. And I imagine
0: being in the state capital, you know, there would be you know there would be some more opportunities than you would if you were a hundred miles away or something like that. You know. Also, yes, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Also, um, just highlighting again some of the young people who are already using their voice, right outside of us. Uh, there, a young lady who just graduated. Um, led one of the the protests around you know police brutality and and unarmed killing k- killings of unarmed um, black men or, or black folks and so um, you know it's it's great to see that that um, one that there exists, young people who already want to engage and have a mind to engage, and that we're finding ways, uh, authentic ways, to engage them over time that, um, that they are responding to.
0: We covered some hard ground here. Uh, how about how about hope? Um, in in this, in this moment, in this hard job, where are the seeds for you? Where do you find hope um, right now?
1: I'm a hopeful guy. Yeah. Right? I was raised just to believe that, you know, pretty much anything is is possible. Um, you, you have to create a plan. You've got to commit to it. You've got to find the resources, or acknowledge and, and access the resources that you already have. So, so that's kind of my orient. That is my orientation, just to life and to work. I came here because I was hopeful, not because of all of the things that were, were broken and and dysfunctional and 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 not in place, but for all the things that were, um, were. Uh, sources of strength and the resources and the assets and all those things that exist here in Jackson and in JPS in particular. Um, As I look out at at our babies, um, the, the more and more I see them, the more I'm just like, there's absolutely no reason why you can't go out and kick butt in the world. There's no reason, right? Um, And quite often the reason why you don't is because people like me in this role or others in in district roles or school leaders or teachers or what have you, because we haven't prepared you. And so I'm determined that that's not going to be your story. You're going to be well prepared and you'll have the option to go out and do great things or sit on it. But it won't be because you weren't prepared. Um, So for sure, as I see our babies and and just think about all that, you know, could be in their lives if somebody just give a daggone. Also hope in the team that we're amassing here Um, for all the haters, you know, and we have some on the team, but not a lot. But for all the haters that exist, the people uh, in and around the area who just don't believe it can be done, there are tons more folks who know, who believe it in their bones, that it can and must be done, um, that they are enough, whether you know how to use Zoom or a Google Classroom or or any of those right now or not, that you are enough, you're smart enough, you're caring enough, determined enough to figure it out, access the resources, get smart about how to do the work better, more effectively, and that it's your job to do that and you're going to do it. Um, So there's lots of hope around us. you know we 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 as I say, we have the haters, we have the folks who are who make it their business to tear down the district to tear down the leaders, the teachers the the children and families pretty pretty regularly, but for for whatever number of them
0: and they've had a little more time on their hands in the past few months
1: apparently, I can't <laughs> imagine that being my my life's work tearing down other people uh clearly, like are you retired like how are you able to do this? <laughs> <laughs> um but but for for whatever number of folks that that there are of those, um, there are so many more who have locked their arms and are standing around us, kind of protecting us, protecting the vision um, and and the possibility that is Jackson Public Schools, and so um, yeah. I, did, I, I wanted
0: to ask too about this this notion of team and the way you use team, because I this morning I watched your recent message, I think maybe it was just yesterday that it came out, I'm not sure, it was very recent, uh, to administrators, faculty, and staff, is the way they took it, right, of Jackson Public Schools, whom you addressed as Team JPS. Yeah. Now I, I know, and you've alluded to it, and I know from talking with you over the years that your vision of leadership is not the traditional guy at the top of the org chart uh, just calling the shots. I know that for you, it's about teamwork, real teamwork and collaboration, more of what scholar uh, Jill Harrison Berg likes to call co-performing leadership. So, so that 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 notion of team in JPS. First of all, do I have it right that you're you're thinking about like all the people, um, you, you know, as part of the team? Okay. And and you've also talked about the importance. Uh, you and I have talked about the importance for you as a leader in allowing people the space, you know, to screw up um, and and learn from that. Can you riff on that for just a second? Because. Because um, I think sometimes people, you know, confuse leadership with management and then of course the, especially with micromanagement, you know, like where like you, you do this thing that I exactly
1: I told you. May I breathe today, sir? May I breathe? <laughs> Is it okay if I breathe today? Like let me know when I can. <laughs> kind of a thing. Uh yeah, I am. Um, So lots and lots of I spent a lot of time thinking about leadership, about team um, and all of that. So um, my job is to ensure that we create conditions for great, magical, excellent things to happen and to be done. Um, And so uh, I I spent a lot of time ensuring that I'm building up the folks around me. Um, and that's not the arbitrary and, um, kind of baseless, um, uh, um, accolades and, and, you know, you're not blowing sunshine. Absolutely. No, we have to give one another hard, the hard truth. We're building a muscle. I like to say, we're building a muscle around feedback, giving and receiving, as I've learned it, you know, it's just as hard sometimes to give the tough feedback as it is to receive it. But we're doing that. I'm modeling it. Um, I'm modeling those times when it doesn't feel great. I'm modeling those times when I'm so, so determined that what I'm thinking is the right way, but my team is not on the same page with me. I've got to investigate that. I've got to explore that. Like... how is it that I'm just completely right and everybody else is wrong? How is that possible? <laughs> right? I mean, it's possible, but like, is it likely that everybody else is wrong? So let's explore this. This is why I think as I do. This is why I believe what I do. Help me understand what I'm missing. And and so quite frankly, Frequently, and if if not in every meeting, what I'll say to team members is um, so, you know, one, I'll ask a question or or pose a, a, um, a direction or a pathway and then ask for feedback and not move on until I've gotten it and then do some cold calling. Or I'll say, poke holes in this. What am I missing? No you 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 cannot just allow me to jump out there with this. I know that I'm missing something. Help me yeah. see what I'm missing. And did it take did it take a while before people believed you? Yeah.
0: You, you know, uh, because this is not the way. This is not the way. You know, this is what not what a lot of leaders
1: ask for. And okay. more to the point, it took a while before they would even say, like, "Listen, Dr. Green, th- this isn't how we have operated." <laughs> And I'm like, but, but I told you, like, I need the feedback. I hear you. And what we've experienced over for many of us, our entire careers is that when you disagree or oppose the, the person, you know, who's supposed to be leading, then, you know, then that puts you in, in, in danger.
0: Yeah. You're supposed to be talking smack in the teacher's lounge. Um, yeah, in the cafeteria or something like that not not supposed to be
1: <laughs> exactly
0: actually disagreeing respectfully and constructively in a moment where it can make some difference
1: and yeah. and what it is is yeah, that's exactly it, so we will have the meetings after the meeting in the parking lot or in the lounge or off in our individual offices, but we won't say it at the table, and so i've started calling people out for having meetings after the meeting that's that's what you're going to get called out for. You're gonna get called out because you didn't push back on me when I said da da da. That's what people are getting called out for. So it's the okay, if this is the thing that drives you, then let's give you some of that experience, but for doing the things outside of this constructive let's let's build and riff and iron sharpening iron here together at the table. Right? Don't text me after the fact. Or I would have said or I was thinking, nope, that's not okay. Next time say it at the table. And and when I've gotten the text during the meeting <laughs> Yes. Wait, from somebody at the table? Oh man. Yeah, that's not true, Dr. Green. It's actually the my response is say it. Say it. Do you text the do you text them back? Yes. Say it Yes. Text them back. Say say it. Okay. I, I absolutely that's do. Funny. I absolutely do. Say it now. Because um, you know, the, again, those are the behaviors that that um, it just perpetuates that that sense that you know we can't have honest conversation here. We're okay. Our relationships will will survive this. Your employment will survive this. Let me show you. I know that you had some strong feelings about X. Say it now. It's um, you know, it's a culture we're building, and we we had to do the things though, like the the relationship building, getting to know one another. We're continuing to do that. We had to create the norms, you know, uh, attack the issue, not the person, assume the best intentions, confidentiality, all those things that create the conditions for me to have an honest conversation with you right here. And you make and you make those explicit. Oh, we we created yep. those norms. Yep. We right. as a team created those norms from the beginning, right. and every year we re up. Okay, these were the norms that we had last year. Do these still make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and exactly. and people will say, Hey, you know, I'm gonna be I'm gonna uh, be vulnerable now, and da da da. i was like, okay. And then when you do it, like people are celebrating you and whatnot. So you were being vulnerable. Okay, well let let's have more and more of this vulnerability.
0: That's that's critical for any kind of team that hopes to be productive, and I and I, and I advise you know teachers to do it with students, you know to to create those things together, and so it creates a much different environment, you know, in classes just to draw an analogy for a second, much different, much different environment uh, to develop those things together rather than like you know have the students roll in and you hand them a sheet of paper, point to the th- something on the wall, and say, this is the way that it's going in here. You
1: know? Right. One last uh, thought on that is um, yeah. I, uh, I, I also have been um, have become uh, pretty disciplined about um, coming back around to apologize for something or naming something that I got wrong. Um, again, because I want to debunk this belief that the the positional leader has all the knowledge and, you know, is always going to get it right. So I've got to debunk that. Um, and I very intentionally, when, when we're talking about, I don't know, high school schedules, I very intentionally position the leader in that discussion as the person who does that work the assistant superintendent for high schools, like, you've got to lead this conversation because I'm out of my depth. Please lead us through this. And not because you've got all the knowledge, but because you have more of the knowledge, intimate knowledge and experience than most of us at this table. And so, you know, pulling myself back from that, you know, not only positional leadership, but leadership in this discussion to position others to lead us out. Um, I think is another thing that's allowing people to see themselves as, you no, know, no, we're, we're equals in this discussion. We're equals in this discussion and your ideas and your beliefs and your experiences have got to show up at the table or I'm not, we're, we're not getting the full benefit of who you are as a professional, as an educator, we're, you're holding back on us and therefore our decision making and the pathways that we take are likely not going to be the best because we don't have the full benefit of, of all that you could bring.
0: Leadership is never easy, you know. let alone in an urban school district where I think the average tenure of a superintendent is something like around four years, uh, you know, and as we've said, let alone during a pandemic in which the federal government has completely abdicated a leadership role. How are you taking care of yourself?
1: Wow, uh, I appreciate that question. Um, um, I will say I'm doing a decent job. Given the the crazy stressful period that we're in, but I'm doing a decent job because I came into this role being really, really intentional about it. Um, I, I before I even started the role, like I was very mindful about the 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 home and what I needed at home to to relax when I come home. Um, finding the, you know, that restaurant or that place where I could go and walk or, you know, those kinds of things, a massage uh, therapist. And, and um, even, you know, um, while I haven't settled on one yet, uh, finding a, um, uh, um, a therapist, a psychologist or or someone. Yeah. All those kinds of things. I'm yeah. I was very intentional about those things coming in because I wanted to make sure that I had an, I was giving myself a fighting chance to sustain and to be sane and, um, and to manage stress. Um, You know, high blood pressure runs in the family, diabetes runs in the family, all those kinds of things. And I was just determined that, that, I would be as intentional as possible about that. So here comes COVID. I, I already have some practices around just um, healthy eating, healthier healthier eating, healthier living, exercising, um, You know, creating the breaks in my day and in life just to kind of rejuvenate in that. So I'm doing a bit of that. Um, I, I do a lot of self-talk as well. Also, frankly, I've just got a lot of people who... Are betting on me um, and and holding me accountable for um, for taking care of myself and so getting the rest unplugging at some point um, not taking on too much at once um, you know all those things so I listen a lot to my peers who have been or are currently serving in the role and and um, um, you know, there's there's a, a number of us who who are intentional about um, surviving the superintendency. Uh, and I actually, you know, I, I've, I named from the very beginning of my tenure here. I plan to be here for quite some time. I plan to here be here at least for a decade. Um, because I, I just want to ensure that the things that we build take root, that I've built out a team here. Um, Where if something happens to me, or if I get voted off the island, as I sometimes say, that, you know, they'll be able to easily find someone from within, who can carry pick it up and carry it forward, because they've got the skills, they've got the knowledge, there's a level of commitment, and they've been in the work, So can't miss it, wouldn't miss a beat often
0: because this is a show about what and how and why we learn, I like to ask guests, you know, about a teacher who is a strong influence on you. Uh, and you, even though I've mentioned already, your, your bio on the, on the, on the uh, uh, JPS website is pretty short. You know, it's five succinct paragraphs, but Mrs. Granberry gets a, gets a shout out, your third grade teacher, whom you credit with inspiring, you know, your love of learning and you know you say you know you say a little bit about their uh, her there i wondered if you wanted to say anything else you know quickly about her but i also wanted to ask about some of these you know influences in terms of uh, uh leadership so however way you want to take that but i'm interested in the influences and the inspiration for you in doing this
1: uh, i am blessed in a lot of ways a lot of ways not the least of which is my network I, when i it's hard for me to hold in my head the numbers of people that I've learned from, um, and that's folks that I've worked with very closely, and that's folks with folks with whom I've had kind of a shorter um, experience, and so um, Mrs. Granberry was an amazing teacher. Um, And honestly, I don't know how she did on evaluations or, you know, (laughs) classroom observations. And I don't know how she would have done on that. What I will tell you is she had uh, relationships that that was her superpower. Relationships. I believed that I could do anything she partnered very closely with my family and so you know that that is absolutely clear that was a clear lesson as i moved into the um uh, the profession as a teacher and and school leader and on that relationships that that was going to be part of my part of the magic that that helps me to achieve anything um in the work so for sure that relationship my um my parents my dad is deceased now but my parents were Um, my mom is um, just uh, they're just really good people and again with relationships they they um, both of them just um, exude this level of of comfort so that people very easily easily warm up to them come to them with with challenges and come to them and want to celebrate successes that sort of thing and so that's that's the, the cloth that I'm cut from. Um, I, I want and need people to be comfortable around me. That makes me comfortable. Um, that's, of course, I'm talking about people who are, are, are good people or doing good things in the world. I don't want folks who are tearing others down to be comfortable around me. In fact, I want you to be uncomfortable. So again, you know, by all the colleagues, people who've worked along with me, people I've supervised, people who have supervised me, families that I've worked alongside, um, parents, on and on and on. Um, I I find myself over time just taking pieces of individuals, Um, people like yourself, people who are super, super smart, very critical of ideas and the world around them that have challenged me to think more critically uh, about what exists and and why what we really want, want out of life doesn't exist. And therefore, what, what can we do about it? What's my role in this? Um, and seeing myself as someone who has some agency to make things happen um, and challenging myself to do that.
0: Eric, thank you so much. Thanks for that uh, lovely, kind word. Thank you for your time today. Is there a question you would have liked me to ask uh, that I did not ask? Is there something else that you would like to
1: add? One thing that I just don't want to ever miss the opportunity to do is to shout out this amazing community. I now get it. You know, I I heard in DC, the superintendent, well, the chancellor there shout out and, and give accolades to the community there. Um, and I, I agreed, but you know, I wasn't in that role And same in, in other places where I've been definitely in Tulsa superintendent there. She, you know, doesn't miss an opportunity to shout out the Tulsans and the the fiber of the community there. I get it. I get it now from this role with this perspective understanding more deeply the challenges that people face but also the the options that people have to lean in or to lean back and the numbers of times that people actually lean in with resources to support you know fellow man another family another organization offering resources giving grace to us, when we don't quite get it right, or when we miss, you know, misstep, or what have you, just all of those things, um, it's pretty remarkable. In fact, it makes me emotional when I think about just all that, all that, um, you know, that people do to create the kind of community that we all really deserve and and want, and many of us want and, and want to live in, and that we want for our children. And and so, um, I'm I'm just. Deeply, deeply indebted, um, greatly appreciative, and humbled by the um, the heart that goes into uh, the experiences that I've I've had here in Jackson. Um, it was never my plan to be here in Jackson, um, but I'm so 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 thankful that, that I'm here now.
0: And I'm sure that there's a lot in the a lot of people in the community uh, who would say that they're very thankful that you were there. Thank you. I'm thankful you've been here. Such a pleasure to talk to you under any circumstances, but this has been particularly rich.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Pete. I I appreciate it. Um, Always just good to chat with you. Uh, I feel blessed every time I emerge with like, okay, we got this. We can do this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, like over under uh, for for the closing credits, like you, me, and Al do some karaoke. Is that what you Yeah. That, that's what the, we should do. That's exactly get it. Get together.
1: That's yeah,
0: exactly it. That's it for today's show. My great thanks to Dr. Green for taking the time to talk and to Gil Scott Chapman for laying down some special Mississippi-inspired piano tracks for use in this episode. Thanks, as always, to Schaefer James for intro and outro music. And thanks to you for listening, sharing, and subscribing to the show. Rating and reviewing on your podcast platform of choice helps us connect with other people curious about what and how and why we learn. A proud member of the Lyceum Consortium for Education Podcasts, Point of Learning is written, recorded, edited, mixed, and produced by me here in sunny Buffalo, New York. I'm Peter Horn, and I'll be back at you with a fresh episode just as soon as I can. Until then, stay safe, strong, and prophetic. Make sure everyone you know has participated in the census, and as someone who just volunteered to become a poll worker in my county, see what steps you can take to help November voting go smoothly where you live. We'll just sing it right up, because I do have some, I do have some like uh, raw demo tapes from the new deck. Yeah. Circuit 2013, so I'm just gonna throw that in there, yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. Cool. And when you're ready, you know, I'll make sure that my attorneys <laughs> shout you out. <laughs> because that was not in the release form. Exactly. Uh, there was yeah, no okay. release form.
0: Yep. Cool. Cool.